0: HPpodcraft.com Conradine was ten years old, and the doctor had pronounced his professional opinion that the boy would not live another five years. The doctor was silky and effete and counted for little, but his opinion was endorsed by Mrs. Durop, who counted for nearly everything. Mrs. Durop was Conradine's cousin and guardian, and in his eyes she represented those three-fifths of the world that are necessary and disagreeable and real. The other two-fifths in perpetual antagonism to the foregoing were summed up in himself and his imagination. One of these days, Conradine supposed he would succumb to the mastering pressure of wearisome necessary things, such as illness, coddling restrictions, and drawn-out dullness. Without his imagination, which was rampant under the spur of loneliness, he would have succumbed long ago.
1: That was the opening paragraph of Sredny Vashtar. A short story we will be discussing here on HP Podcraft, Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer.
2: And I'm Chris Lackey. This is a short story by the author known only as Saki. No one knows who he was, hmm. or even if he was real, or just a ghost of a fisherman. Ooh. We do know that Saki was uh, the person that gave us the term ghostwriter. Hmm. Or was it? Oh. No one knows for sure.
1: It's a mystery, which is what we're all about here. Uh, we just finished a month of mystery authors, and we thought... It would be a nice transition into doing a month on an author nobody knows anything about at all, this person Saki.
2: Oh, sorry. Wait. I just looked him up on Wikipedia. There is a lot of information about this guy.
1: Oh, as I said, we're here to blow the lid off of this mystery about Saki. It turns out that Saki is much more than just booze-breath-flavored water. That is actually sake. (laughs) Yes. You can have it hot, like a box of white wine left in the back of a hatchback in August, or cold... (laughs) As if you consumed that box of wine, died, then were cryogenically frozen and reanimated with no soul and threw up a little bit in your mouth as a result. (laughs) This is not that kind of sake. This is sake, sometimes known as H.H. Monroe.
2: Monroe? Born Hector Hugh Monroe in 1870. Sorry, that's a reference to Too Close for Comfort character played by Jim J. Bullock. Yes, Who's still alive? I, I got in my head he, he died and I looked him up and no, he's still alive. He's doing stuff. He was on Glee.
1: He's a great actor. I think most people would miss that Monroe reference. but So thank you for explaining it.
2: But this Monroe was born in British Burma, the son of the inspector general for the Indian Imperial Police.
1: And this is the uh, country that is currently Myanmar, subject uh, at that time to British colonial rule. Uh, in fact, it didn't win its independence until 1948.
2: Oh. <sighs> God, that's late. Oh, man. <laughs> hey, a lot
1: of worse things have happened since then, to be honest. Oh, they, they, in some periods, they were a democracy, but there's been a, a civil war there for a very long time.
2: Yeah. Monroe's mother, Mary, was charged yeah. by a cow and died when he was seven years old.
1: Yes. But I, let's not malign... a innocent cow here she was visiting england when this happened the cow did charge her but it didn't directly kill her uh it was the shock of the incident that then caused her to miscarry and then there were some complications from that that uh led to her demise so manslaughter or cow slaughter
2: monroe's father sent him and his siblings to live in england after his wife's death where the children were raised by their parental grandmother and aunts Uh, The house was very strict, and it is said that one of the characters in the story was based off of his aunt Augusta. So, not good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it seems like these guardians made it into a lot of his fiction.
2: When he was 23, Monroe got his dad's old job and moved to Burma. Uh, He had health problems there, so he returned after 15 months. At the age of 26, he wanted to give writing a go, so he worked as a journalist while working on his first book, The Rise of the Russian Empire. He also got into writing short stories and had his first story published at the age of 29. He also got into political satire, which is where he started using the pen name Saki. He was a foreign correspondent during the 1905 Russian Revolution. After that, he moved to Paris and he wrote until the First World War started. He was too old to be enlisted, but he got in anyway and served as an ordinary trooper.
1: I read that more than once he returned to the battlefield when officially too sick or injured. So he's a pretty tough guy this Saki.
2: He was killed by a sniper during battle. His supposed last words were, "Put that bloody cigarette out." Oof.
1: Yeah, that's a short story all on its own. His death is almost like one of his short stories, sad, yeah. short, funny
2: at the same yeah. time. <laughs> yes. It can't be true.
1: It seems like of things to say before you get killed by a sniper, that probably popped up a few times. I don't know how unlikely that is. (laughs) Turn that flashlight off. Stop belching so loudly. Things like that are probably the last words of many sniper victims.
2: One thing about Saki was that he was gay. But he kept his sex life very private because obviously he saw what happened to Oscar Wilde. Right. And any openly gay person at that time was, was uh, pretty ostracized, if not criminally prosecuted. So he kept it on the DL.
1: After his death, his sister Ethel destroyed most of his papers and wrote her own account of their childhood. So a lot of what we know about his internal life and early years comes from what she had to say about it. Uh, too oh. bad she destroyed that stuff because we might have gotten his uh, his own account of what his life was like, but we don't have right. it. Probably because there was some reference to his homosexuality in there. Yeah. We can't know for sure, but, you
2: know. This story, Sredny Vastar, was first published in 1912 in a book called The Chronicles of Clovis.
1: Yes, this is uh, an anthology collection available on Gutenberg if folks want to go read it. We, uh, last month, weren't very public domain. So this this time we are. You can read all of this stuff. Uh, Saki and this particular story were recommended to us by listener Sandy Lyle, A lot of folks have actually mentioned this author over the years, but thank you, Sandy, for breaking out some stories for us to cover all month. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know the open window has been much requested, so we will likely also do that one. In fact, a listener named Dylan Hoover a couple of years ago recommended this particular story and had a little reading that he had done of it. So I said, hey, why don't you come on board and share that reading and do the other story that we're going to cover as well today, which is Tobermory. If folks are wondering, that's the other story we're going to be talking about. So thank you, (laughs) Dylan Hoover, for being our reader.
2: Yes. Well, let's get into the story. It begins with this boy, Conradin, which is Mm -hmm. a strange name. Conrad with I-N at the end of it. He's 10 years old. But he's not very well.
1: I feel like this has almost become a segment, what's in a name? But (laughs) authors rarely choose names at random. So I believe this is a reference to Conradin, the king of Jerusalem, uh, Uh. who lived from 1252 to 1268. I'll let you guys at home calculate the age that that would make Conradin. While I tell you that Conrad called the younger or the boy and usually Uh. known by the diminutive Conradin. So Conradin means His name would be Conrad if he was an adult. So Conrad means you're a young Conrad. He was the last direct heir to the house of Hohenstaufen. He was Duke of Swabia and nominal King of Jerusalem and Sicily. After his attempt to reconquer Sicily failed, he was caught and beheaded. And how old was he? Ding! That's right, you math wizards. He was 16 years old when that happened. Wow. So this Conradin, our main character in this story, is 10 at the beginning of the story. But the doctor at the top said he has maybe only five years left. So it seems like Mm. he's... He's due for the same fate. I do think it is a significant uh, naming.
2: It might be because of his health, but it's also because of his guardian, Mrs. Derop. You
1: mean why he might pass away in five years? Yeah. yeah I, I mean, they're, they're telling him this, but you wonder, is he really ill? This is what it says. Mrs. Derop would never in her honestest moments have confessed to herself that she disliked Conradin, though she might have been dimly aware that thwarting him for his good was a duty which she did not find particularly irksome. <laughs> so she kind of likes disciplining him. Yeah. Conradin hated her with a desperate sincerity, which he was perfectly able to mask. Such few pleasures as he could contrive for himself gained an added relish from the likelihood that they would be displeasing to his guardian and from the realm of his imagination she was locked out an unclean thing which should find no entrance. So mm-hmm. there is a silent war happening between these two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. DeRope really doesn't like the child and the child really doesn't like her.
2: But this kid has a very rich fantasy life and that keeps him going.
1: And there's this uh, there's this dull cheerless garden in the back that isn't
2: much fun for him but Out in a forgotten corner of this garden is a shed and it's ratty and old but for him it is a haven. It says, something that took on the varying aspects of a playroom and a cathedral.
1: He had peopled it with a legion of familiar phantoms, evoked partly from fragments of history and partly from his own brain. I had a small shed in the backyard where I kept my bike when I was a kid, and yeah, it was its own little world. I like the setup. Mm. I, could, I could relate to it. I could see it.
2: In there, he keeps a raggedy old hen that he loves, it says, on which he lavished an affection that has scarcely another outlet. He also has a large polecat ferret that he keeps in a box in that shed.
1: Right, and this is in a large hutch, it says, divided into two compartments, one of which was fronted with close iron bars. This was the abode of the polecat ferret. I don't know if that... Is that a regular ferret or it's a hybrid? I'm not a I don't know. ferret guy. I think a polecat ferret's probably a larger... I think ferrets are all polecats, so it's probably just a, a pretty big specimen. Yeah. A ferret says a friendly butcher boy had smuggled this in for him, cage and all, into its present quarters in exchange for a long secreted hoard of small silver. Conradin was dreadfully afraid of the lithe, sharp fanged beast, but it was his most treasured possession.
2: Yeah, I thought to myself, boy, that's pretty cruel, keeping an animal like that in a small box, but kind of pays off here. Eventually,
1: Well, especially because it's in a closed hutch, so likely that animal is in the dark all the time, since it's hidden, which is mean, but I guess if the attention you pay it is good enough, I mean, what kind of attention does he pay to this ferret?
2: Well, we're about to find out, because he decides to make this thing his god and make a religion based around this animal. (laughs) He named it Sredni Vashtar. He would leave things at the box for it, offerings to his god, like red flowers, powdered nutmeg, and he would make up little rituals for it. He's
1: learned these things a bit from observing conventional religion. It says the woman indulged in – he calls the, he calls his aunt the – or his cousin that is his guardian the woman. It yeah. says the woman indulged in religion once a week at a church nearby and took Conradin with her. But to him, the church service was an alien rite in the house of Rimen. Uh, Rimen was a Syrian cult temple. So that's uh-huh. what he's calling his shrine to Sredni Vashtar. And I like this bit. Sredny Vashtar was a god who laid some special stress on the fierce, impatient side of things, as opposed to the woman's religion, which, as far as Conradin could observe, went to great lengths in the contrary direction. So Sredny <laughs> is a god who gets things done, whatever this kid wants. Ferrets are a little scary, uh, as cute as they are. Yeah. I guess our old friend Anthony Lombardo had a ferret, even though that's illegal in California. Uh-huh. And he also had two turtles. And one day we went over there for lunch, he had just a ferret and lots of blood. Whoa! <laughs> Do
2: you remember that? No, I yeah, don't remember that. Yeah, the ferret got
1: into the aquarium and killed the turtles. And it was wow. disgusting. There were body parts everywhere. So oh, I was a little, up till that point, ferrets were these sort of cute, cute animals that, yeah. you know, like the guy that sold pot to me in college had one, you know, so, so I kind of associated <laughs> it with that. But after that day, I thought, oh, holy crap.
2: Yeah, they're predators, man. So the hen was never part of this cult. She was an Anabaptist whatever that was
1: yeah he decided she's anabaptist even though he doesn't he doesn't he has no idea what that means (laughs) which is funny he just didn't think she belonged in the cult even though he loves her this elaborate religion in the past he's almost convinced himself it's had some sort of effect there were three days when mrs derop had a terrible toothache and he had done a lot of worshiping and giving of stolen nutmeg over those three days so maybe Mm -hmm. maybe this thing really is powerful
2: so after a while mrs derop noticed that he was spending a lot of time at the shed One day at breakfast, she tells Conradin that the hen was sold and taken away overnight. So he didn't even get to say goodbye to this thing. But what's curious about this is she didn't notice that there was another animal in there.
1: Yeah, I think the box is closed away in the hutch. And so as long as it knows to be quiet, or at least it doesn't make noise when they're in there, people aren't noticing.
2: It says, with her short-sighted eyes, she peered at Conradin, waiting for an outbreak of rage and sorrow, which she was ready to rebuke with a flow of excellent precepts and reasoning. But Conradin said nothing. There was nothing to be said. Oh, man. At this point, I was steaming in the story. I was like, oh, how could she do that? This terrible woman. And I'm like, there better be some comeuppets in this.
1: Yeah, well, we have a lot of elements that were also present in The uh, Leopard Lady by Dorothy L. Sayers. You know, we've got this child in an enchanted garden. We've got some guardians that maybe don't want him around. I will say, you didn't hear a warning at the top of this episode about violence toward children, so... (laughs) Let's see how this plays out. Now, knowing that getting rid of the hen would upset the boy, Mrs. Durop made some toast for him. That was a sort of consolation. It says there was toast on the table, a delicacy which she usually banned on the ground that it was bad for him. Also because oh. the making of it gave trouble. A deadly offense in the f- in the middle class feminine eye. So they're not even letting Conrad have toast, I guess, because oh. they don't want him to mess with a toaster. But didn't even the the kids in Wuthering Heights even got toast. I mean, that's some, come on. <laughs>
2: Dude, I don't think they had toasters back then.
1: Well, then why does, why does it give trouble?
2: Because you had to put it by the fire. You got to like put toast and like on a stick where there's like these little old-fashioned, it's like two pieces of metal that you squeeze together, you put the bread in there, and then you go in the fire. So you'd have to actually go and play in the fire to, to make that happen.
1: Why doesn't he just use a toaster? <laughs> that is funny I said that. It's like the late 1800s. What am I thinking? That was really not on purpose. You know, I like anachronisms, but that was just pure stupidity. I'm like, guess guess the toaster's bugging him.
2: <laughs> oh, boy. You idiot. So the kid goes back to the shed and he prays to his God and he chants and he praises it and he asks for a boon. Do one thing for me, Shredney Vashtar. And he doesn't specify what that one thing is because his God would know.
1: Seems like the leopard lady's on the other foot. Every night in the welcome darkness of his bedroom and every evening in the dusk of the tool shed, Conradin's bitter litany went up. Do one thing for me, Sredni Vashtar.
2: So Mr. Ropp notices that he's still going down to the shed and asks what he's keeping in the box. She figures it's guinea pigs, but he says nothing. So she decides to ransack his room to try and find the key for the box, the box that right.
1: the ferret's in. It says Conradin prayed his prayer. So she's got the key now. It says, but he knew as he prayed that he did not believe. He knew that the woman would come out presently with that pursed smile he loathed so well on her face, and that in an hour or two the gardener would carry away his wonderful god, a god no longer but a simple brown ferret in a hutch. And he knew that the woman would triumph always, as she triumphed now, and that he would grow ever more sickly under her pestering and domineering and superior wisdom till one day nothing would matter much more with him and the doctor would be proved right. Now it's seeping in. This is... You know, my old little imaginative ploy that this is a god. I I know deep down it's not going to work.
2: And of course, he thinks I'm she's going to be right about everything and I'm probably going to die soon. So he loudly says his final chant. Sredni Vashtar went forth. His thoughts were red thoughts and his teeth were white. His enemies called for peace, but he brought them death. Sredni Vashtar the Beautiful. And he goes to the window and he sees the shed doors open and he waits. But she doesn't come out. And he waits longer and she still doesn't come out. Then a lot of time passes and still nothing. Then finally, out through the doorway came a long, low, yellow and brown beast with eyes a blink at the waning daylight and dark wet stains around the fur of its jaws and throat. Conradin dropped to his knees. The great polecat ferret made its way down a small brook at the front of the garden, drank for a moment, then crossed a little plank bridge and was lost to sight in the bushes. Such was the passing of Sredni Vashtar. And while the maid went to summon her
0: mistress to tea, Conradine fished out a toasting fork out of the sideboard drawer and proceeded to toast himself a piece of bread. And during the toasting of it and buttering of it with much butter and the slow enjoyment of eating it, Conradine listened to the noises and silences which fell in quick spasms behind the dining room door. The loud foolish screaming of the maid, the answering chorus of wondering ejaculations from the kitchen region, the scuttering of footsteps and hurried embassies for outside help, and then, after a lull, the scared sobbings and shuffling tread of those who bore a heavy burden into the house. Whoever will break it to the poor child I couldn't for the life of me exclaimed a shrill voice. And while they debated the matter amongst themselves, Conradine made himself another
1: piece of toast yes <laughs> yes a perfect murder oh boy that's a little comeuppance for what happened to the leopard lady it feels like yeah you know and yeah. it redeemed ferrets somewhat for me because <laughs> killing turtles that was not cool no killing a person now you're all right
2: <laughs> uh yes I liked it. That
1: was a good. That was a good introduction yeah. to sake.
2: Yeah, that was. I was really happy with that one.
1: Much better than sake, which t- typically I think this Japanese food is so good. Can I have something that will ruin it? <laughs> this is much better than that.
2: Oh boy. I love that you hate sake. Uh, I love it. I think it's great. This rice is so delicious. Could you
1: put some in a bag and then just leave it out for a couple months and then whatever (laughs) runs out of there? Put in a little glass for me. And you know what? Heat it up. (laughs)
2: Hot box. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, let's jump into Tobermory. (laughs) It was a chill, rain-washed afternoon
0: of a late August day. That indefinite season when partridges are still in security or cold storage and there is nothing to hunt. "'unless one is bounded on the north by the Bristol Channel, "'in which case one may lawfully gallop after fat red stags. "'Lady Blemley's house-party was not bounded on the north by the Bristol Channel, "'hence there was a full gathering of her guests round the tea-table "'on this particular afternoon. "'And, in spite of the blankness of the season and the triteness of the occasion, "'there was no trace on that company of that fatigued restlessness "'which means a dread of the pianola and a subdued hankering for auction-bridge.' The undisguised open-mouthed attention of the entire party was fixed on the homely negative personality of Mr. Cornelius Appin. Of all her guests, he was the one who had come to Lady Blemley with the vaguest reputation. Someone had said he was clever, and he had got his invitation in the moderate expectation, on the part of his hostess, that some portion of his cleverness would be contributed to the general entertainment. Until tea-time that day, she had been unable to discover in what direction,
1: if any, his cleverness lay. A hunting party without the hunting. That can be really boring and tough. I I mean, I've been there. Everybody just standing around awkwardly. You know, what do we do if there's no animal to murder? You expect me to socialize? How can I loosen up if I haven't shot a fox?
2: (laughs) All right. Well, typically here, what they do is they just have the dogs rip the fox apart.
1: Yeah. So So they can relax.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So they can relax. Uh, Now we have this fancy house party And this guy, Cornelius Appen, has been invited by Lady Blemley because he was clever. But he's not clever in the way that she expected him to be. He's a scientist of sorts.
1: She thought she was getting Lord Henry, but instead she got Lord Kelvin. It's that (laughs) that old saying. She thought she was, you know, witty clever, but instead he's... Science clever.
2: Yeah, you want Lord Kelvin in the streets, but you want a Lord Henry in the sheets.
1: That's right. That's right.
2: <laughs> we discover that for the last 17 years, he has been experimenting with animals, trying to teach them to talk.
1: And that's all a part. That's all one thing. Yeah. It's not, he hasn't been experimenting with animals and trying to teach them to the talk. That is the. that's what the experiment's about. Just want to yeah. clarify.
2: <laughs> Cats, he's found, are clever. And he's found that Lady Blemley's cat is very clever. And over the last week, he's taught it to talk.
1: Yes. These stories are really short, so some things I was very interested in, but they were just glossed over. Yes. It says, of course, I have experimented with thousands of animals, but latterly only with cats, these wonderful creatures, who have assimilated themselves so marvelously with our civilization while retaining all of their highly developed feral instincts. Thousands of animals he's done? Like, what did those experiments look like? Because... Honestly, I've talked to a lot of animals too, you know? Questioning yeah. of animals is something I regularly participate in. You're yeah. at the zoo, like, ooh, are you hungry? Do you like that? I've done that stuff. Mm-hmm. Am I a scientist?
2: Sure. Everyone at the party thinks that he's pulling their leg and that he's a liar or just maybe a nut. But they all know this cat, Tobermory, and they've seen him around and they've thought nothing special of it.
1: What's in the name? <laughs> Tobermory. It's the capital of the Scottish Isle of Mull. Uh, derived from the Gaelic meaning Mary's Well, which refers to a well located nearby, which was dedicated in ancient times to the Virgin Mary. It's not just a statement about Mary's well being, it actually is oh, a thing. I see.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. No idea what the relevance of any of that could be to the story, but fun fact legend has it that the wreck of a Spanish galleon laden with gold lies somewhere in the mud at the bottom of Tobermory Bay. Ooh. Lots of attempts over the years to get it. There was a big one in the 50s. No treasure yet as of this recording.
2: I know what I'm doing this weekend.
1: Exactly. But here, Tobermory is a cat, and this guy has pretty quickly, it seems, really quickly taught him to speak. Yes. Or it, or she. I'm not sure what the gender is of the cat. I'm imagining a Jeremy Irons kind of erudition coming from this thing. (laughs) Uh, Here and there among cats, one comes across an outstanding superior intellect. When I made the acquaintance of Tobermory a week ago, I saw at once that I was in contact
2: with a beyond cat of extraordinary intelligence. (laughs) That's in quotes, too. Beyond cat hyphenated as well.
1: the scientific term for it, yeah.
2: Miss Resker asks if he means like one-syllable sentences, but he's like, no, full talking.
1: Because that's how you would teach kids or savages a language. Apparently, he just had to unlock some speech center because after that, cat's already learned all this stuff. In fact, he's a smooth talker.
2: So they all decide to see if this is true. And they go into the drawing room. Some are thinking it will be a ventriloquist bit. They quickly find out that the cat can full on talk.
1: One guy goes in alone and says, no, don't keep us waiting. And the cat says, I'll do what I want. And he's like, whoa, (laughs) he wanders back in. He goes, no, seriously. And everybody is realizing, oh, this is a real thing. And then the cat kind of wanders in. On his own.
2: So the cat yeah. comes into them, and then Lady Blemley asks, Will you have some milk? The cat says, I don't mind if I do. And then as she <laughs> pours some of the milk into, into a saucer, it spills, and she goes, Oh, I'm afraid I spilled a good deal of it. And the cat says, After all, it's not my Axminster. It's like, Whoa! Uh, Axminster is a fancy carpet. And not yeah. only can the cat talk, it's cheeky.
1: This cat wandered in from the Disney all cat version of Dorian Gray. <laughs>
2: So Miss Pellington asked the cat what he thinks of human intelligence. And he says, which human? And she says, herself. You put
0: me in an embarrassing position, said Tobermory, whose tone and attitude certainly did not suggest a shred of embarrassment. When your inclusion in this house party was suggested, Sir Wilfred protested that you were the most brainless woman of his acquaintance and that there was a wide distinction between hospitality and the care of the feeble-minded. Lady Blemley replied that your lack of brain power was the precise quality which had earned you your invitation, as you were the only person she could think of who might be idiotic enough to buy their old car. You know, the one they call the envy of Sisyphus, because it goes quite nicely uphill if you push it.
2: Oh, oh, damn, this cat is spilling tea. Yeah. And Mavis knows it's true, because earlier that day, Lady Blemley brought up selling her car to her. (laughs) Damn. Yeah. Major Barfield tries to change the subject, but the cat calls them out as well.
1: Yeah, he he tries to slut shame the cat. He says, hey, what about you getting it on with that tortoiseshell up uh, up at the stables? He's talking about tortoiseshell cat up there. Oh. Tobermory says, uh, from a slight observation of your ways, since you've been in this house, I should imagine you'd find it inconvenient if I were to shift the conversation onto your own little affairs. <laughs> it's like,
2: oh. <laughs> oh, this cat's seen some stuff. Yeah. Everyone is freaking out about this cat and what it knows and what it will say. Now, of course, everybody has quickly forgotten about how flipping amazing it is that this cat can talk, Uh, that it's intelligent and it's witty and (laughs) like, if this happened, this would change all of humanity. This is a game changer. I have another intelligent species. The world as we know it would be completely different but they're too self-absorbed to think about the greater implications of this at all.
1: Well, it is kind of terrifying, though. I mean, like a lot of good science fiction, this presents what the unforeseen consequences would be, because if Claude came in here and started talking, I've had this cat for 18 years. Yeah. He's seen some stuff, I'm sure. That would occur to me too before I brought him out to the press, I think, cuz I'm sure he's got <laughs> opinions about some of that stuff. I'm pretty sure about it.
2: It's some pretty strong feelings as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I used to work in an office as well, you know, where everybody was connected through instant messenger all day, and you just get bored and you say some of the worst. I'm just saying even nice people say horrible yeah. things. Yeah, of course. <laughs> because you're goofing or whatever, does the animal understand what was a joke and what wasn't? Mm, I don't yeah, want him talking. True.
2: So they have an awkward dinner and an even more awkward time in the sitting room afterwards the cat shows up mm-hmm. and starts going into how mrs cornette shows up for food and thinks that lady Blemley is a bore. of course she denies it but before he can go on he sees a yellow tom cat out the window and he just leaves and chases after it
1: there was a little passage that made me laugh where you know after he says well if i got if i got into some of your affairs and then they all think that cat Walks back and forth on this railing that's right in line with the windows to everybody's room. (laughs) So this cat's seen everything we've been up to. And there's one guy who goes, I haven't been up to anything. The thing that he's upset about is the cat's going to be like that guy, by the way. There's nothing going on behind the scenes there. He's just (laughs) reading his book and going to sleep every night. And the guy's worried about that, which is so funny.
2: (laughs) So much to the doctor's dismay, they all want to kill the cat. Not just the cat, but the cat that lives in the stable because they think maybe that cat taught that cat how to talk. Mr. Appin protests, but they tell him,
1: You can go and experiment on the shorthorns at the farm who are under proper control, said Mrs. Cornette, or the elephants at the zoological gardens. They're said to be highly intelligent, and they have this recommendation, that they don't come creeping about our bedrooms and under chairs and so forth. <laughs>
2: So they poison some food and they put it out. Sir Wilfrid tries to get the stable cat, but that pisses off the coachman, who loves the cat. Unfortunately, or fortunately, Tobermory doesn't show up that day, and by nighttime, everyone is worried. They're worried that maybe the cat went to the newspaper and is airing out all their dirty laundry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why? Why would well, the cat I was do that? About. <laughs> they all go to bed, very worried about everything. In the morning, the gardener discovers Tobermory's dead body. It has mm. bite marks and yellow fur in its claws, and it seems to have gotten in a fight that it couldn't win with that yellow tomcat from the rectory.
0: By midday, most of the guests had quitted the towers, and after lunch, Lady Blemley had sufficiently recovered her spirits to write an extremely nasty letter to the rectory about the loss of her valuable pet. Tober Mori had been Appen's one successful pupil, and he was destined to have no successor. A few weeks later, an elephant at the Dresden Zoological Gardens, which had shown no previous signs of irritability, broke loose and killed an Englishman who had apparently been teasing it. The victim's name had variously been reported in the papers as Oppen and Eppelin, but his front name was faithfully rendered Cornelius. If he was trying German irregular verbs on the poor beast, said Clovis, he deserved all he got.
1: And
2: that's the end of the story.
1: That's the end. <laughs> Irregular verbs are hard. I get it. That was a good yeah, joke. Yeah. When you grow up, you learn them. It's with your native tongue, you know, you learn them at the same time you're learning the rules. Mm-hmm. So they just make sense to you. But when you have to learn a second language. It's tough. You might kill. You might murder somebody. I wonder if the the tomcat, you know, felt inferior to, uh, in my head, he's Toblerone, Tobermory, because <laughs> he could speak and therefore killed him.
2: I thought that as well. That thought crossed my mind. Yeah. So we yeah. don't
1: go for your fancy language learning around here Mm -hmm. Tobermory murder
2: that's what you get yeah lots of murder that was a good one
1: yeah I like that idea of boy animals do know a lot (laughs) yeah even those elements at the zoo have been have watched you you know yell at your kids
2: (laughs) (laughs) yes Yeah, it's good. It's a good story. And I like his writing style. Uh, and these stories are short. You know, we read these two. I think both of them together were only like nine pages. So
1: yeah, we're going to dip into some more sake. I don't, into some more sake, not sake. We're not doing any of that. Uh, <laughs> tastes like a shark's flop sweat, that stuff. I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> I do want to thank our reader today, Dylan Hoover, who uh, had recommended the story and already had a reading in the tank. I also liked what you did with the cat. Thank you so much for reading for us. <laughs> I also want to thank listener Sandy Lyle for, uh, Putting the hard press on us to do this saki stuff.
2: And I wanna thank some of our patron supporters. Without you guys, Chen, I wouldn't be doing this show anymore. That's correct. I'd like to thank Joseph Ives.
1: I'd like to thank Alex.
2: I'd like to thank Joshua. Stuart Pewin, thank you so much. T. Ellenberger, thank you. Penerotic? Thank you. Miff Weaver, thank you so much. For all of
1: your uh, the myths you've weaved and so much more. <laughs> Amanda Larson, thank you.
2: I'd like to thank Stefina Walden.
1: Finally, I'd like to thank Bette Wood. You all are amazing. Really appreciate you hanging in there with us. We're going to be back with more of this fella, H.H. Monroe, next week. For now, I'm Chad Fiverr.
2: And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to HP PodCraft.
0: HPPodCraft.com <laughs>